Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's event, Collecting Performance, which invites our panel of speakers to discuss the evolution of performance art in museums and its entrance into the contemporary art market. This event forms part of our ongoing provocations in art series, which explores provocative contemporary themes and subjects that feature in RA exhibitions. Although performance art existed throughout the 20th century, its status as uncollectible has arguably only recently been refuted. Today, institutions, art fairs and auction houses have all begun to reassess the frameworks in which performance art can be collected, preserved, displayed and sold. And this year, in its 249th year, the RA's summer exhibition for the first time includes performance art in its galleries with performances from artists Alana Francis, India Mackey and Declan Jenkins and Royal Academician Brian Catlin, who joins us for tonight's event. To introduce our speakers, I'm now going to hand over to the chair for tonight's event, Dr Jen Harvey, Professor of Contemporary Theatre and Performance at Queen Mary University of London, Jen's research focuses on the cultural politics of performance and art, and she has written for numerous publications, including Fair Play, Art Performance and Neoliberalism in 2013, and Making Contemporary Theatre in 2010. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming tonight's panel. Okay, so I'm Jen, nice to meet you all, thank you for coming this evening. I'm going to start by introducing the panellists this evening, and I'm going to offer a little bit more context than what Amy's already suggested, and I'm going to start the slideshow. Now everybody knows what we're at, Provocations in Art, Collecting Performance. Um, And after that, we have images that have been submitted by um, the panellists, so beginning with work by Brian, we'll also see work by Pablo, and we'll see work that Catherine's brought, and I'll explain who they are in a moment, and these these are scrolling, these will rotate through, but we can also go to particular ones if we'd like to see them. So if you'd like to ask us to see a particular image later, please do. So our panelists tonight, I'll begin with um, Brian's, Brian Catling, since we're looking at his work at the moment. Brian Catling is a sculptor and multimedia artist who writes poetry and epic fiction and makes installations, films, and performance pieces, including Cyclops 2, which you can see here in the summer exhibition, as Amy noted. He has exhibited work internationally since 1975, was elected to the Royal Academy in 2015, and has long been a professor of fine art at the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art in Oxford. His longtime collaborator, writer Ian Sinclair, has called him an English Joseph Boyce, um, which I think is a compliment to Boyce. (laughs) Um, Okay, and now we're seeing work by Pablo Bronstein. Pablo Bronstein's practice ranges from drawing to performance, focusing on architecture, especially Baroque architecture of the 18th century. His work for performance tends to incorporate Baroque-inspired choreography into architectural settings, including in the images that we're seeing here uh, in the slides at Tate Modern in 2012 and at Tate Britain in 2016. He exhibits internationally, including currently in New York and Paris and imminently in Winnipeg in a shopping mall, as we've been hearing um, in our discussion earlier. And um, he uh, also has several books, and he has also done set design for dance, including at Sadler's Wells in London. And our final panelist today is Catherine Wood, um, and we'll see some work from the Tate Modern in a moment. Catherine is Tate's senior curator, international art, with a focus on performance. In 2003, she helped found Tate's performance program, and since then, she's programmed more than 200 live works by artists. 
She curated Tate Modern's exhibition, A Bigger Splash, Painting After Performance, in 2012, and has contributed to acquisitions of work by artists including Joan Jonas, Tino Segal, um, and Suzanne Lacey. She also writes on performance, especially the work of dancer and choreographer Yvonne Rayner. So those are our three panels this evening. Amy began to set a bit of context for us about the role of performance art in the bigger picture and in the gallery. And I'm just going to do a quick, like extremely quick history. So performance art has probably existed at least since Dada and Russian work in the early 20th century. And it's sometimes seen in the action painting of abstract expressionism in the mid 20th century. But it proliferated in the 60s and 70s with happenings by the likes of Alan Capro and performance artists' works um, by artists including Yoko Ono, Carolee Schneeman, Chris Burden, Gilbert and George, Laurie Anderson, um, Meryl Letterman Eucalese, and later Andrea Fraser, William Pope L., Guillermo Gomez Pena, Lorraine O'Grady, Franco B., Bobby Baker, Kira O'Reilly, Aaron Williamson, Linda Montano, to name a few. And it's become increasingly visible, as Amy's suggesting, even possibly institutionalized, which might be something we can discuss this evening, since the turn of the millennium. As evidenced in the high-profile exhibition of work by, for example, Tina Segal and Marina Abramovich. In 2010, for example, MoMA in New York held a major retrospective of the work of Abramovich. And in 2012, Tate Modern opened The Tanks, a space dedicated to showing installation, film, and performance. And as Amy said, in the summer exhibition this year, for the first time, um, performance art has been included. So it's in this context that we're looking tonight at the increasing institutionalization, potentially, of performance in the gallery. And some of the issues that that institution, uh, that shift in collecting of performance into the galleries raises uh, or suggests might be, or not just issues, but also possibilities. Uh, might be um, opportunities for collaboration, which might be different from solo um, art practices, which many other art practices might be seen as being, although perhaps no art practice is a solo practice. Um, we, might, we might think about the ways that performance art makes us think about, think about bodies differently from other kinds of visual art, makes us think about time differently, since it's often durational, makes us think about sight and the place where the work happens differently than other works. It's also been really important for helping think about art as commodity and as part of a market culture. And performance often resists being those things. It's impossible, or it seems impossible, or it seems to resist curatorship and purchase. Um, it then also helps us think about uh, markets. And it also potentially helps us think about anti-theatricality, if it's positioning itself in galleries and not in theaters. So why is performance doing that? Might be something we might like to think about. And critics recently have been thinking about the relationship between performance in galleries and other arts in galleries and the elite and the popular and asking if performance maybe popularizes the gallery and art by being something which is very um, approachable by social media and specifically um, collection and sharing in social media. So those are some of the contexts that we might place the proliferation of performance in the gallery in tonight. Um, and the first question that I'd like to ask our panel, and I'll get the pictures scrolling again in a moment, is um, do you think that performance has resisted collection, and if so, why? And any taker is welcome to start. So do you think it's performance resists collection, and if so, why? Brian. I don't think it resists. That's the wrong word. It's about something else. The generative force that 
performance starts and the way people use it as experimentation. It's not about that kind of end. It's not thinking about that kind of end and the a durational um, <coughs> containment. It's, it's often thinking about itself. Mm. Um, and you can be enormously selfish about performance art because it's only going to be there for a moment. Mm. And that's part of its power. So, you, you, so you're not a bit in a position of thinking, wonder where, where this is going to be in 10, 20, 100 years' time. It's not. It's going to exist now. And and sometimes I think the true area of curationship for performance is memory. And it's the audience's m um, uh, m memory that you're going for. Okay. Which is awful for curators. <laughs> why, why is it important for you as an artist to try to get lodged in audiences' memories, Brian? I'm interested in what people, people take home. Mm. So we, we often, when we're talking about performance, we're talking about the, the instant, that moment. But... It's what, it's what people take home, what they sleep with. Because often in performance, you're using pretty primal elements. Um, you're using things which kind of are not asking to be cherished. They're not asking to be appreciated in the craft sense. They're kind of a bit in your face or a bit um, raw. And that can go straight through to another, another kind of part of the brain. And that's the part I'm kind of interested in. So I, I like to think about my performances as... Uh, they're gifts to people. They don't necessarily want them, but they're going to get them anyway. <laughs> so would you say that you specifically want audience to have feelings that are then memories? They don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, none of us have a choice. We see something, we watch something, we hear something. And if it's any good, it doesn't. we don't just have a, the ability of saying what it is and describing it back. It goes deeper, it goes into our subconscious, it goes into all kinds of other places. Mm. And you can take that away. Can, can I just say one thing? The origin of clapping is to break the airwaves after an act of mm, uh, mm, magic, from magic uh, ritual. If you perform magic ritual, afterwards you've got to come back into a normal space where people mm. eat and drink and become themselves. So, you, so in tribal cultures, you clap. So it breaks the airwaves, you can come back again. That's why you don't clap in church. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> Pablo, would you like to answer, respond to this question as well? What do I you mean, think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I've got, I've got, I guess, one thought about it, um, which is that, I mean, artists generally are very funny about money in one way or another, um, and. Uh, sometimes there is a problem around it, sometimes there isn't, uh, from the artist's perspective. From the general public, sometimes the public like to think about money, sometimes it doesn't in relation to artworks. I mean, there's no doubt that the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition is extremely popular because things are on sale. And that is pretty fascinating. People are obsessed with auction results and, um, and things that they can buy, and we're obsessed by the cost of prices, and artists either pretend they're very altruistic or they celebrate their money grubbingness or whatever. They've got a shtick with money. We all, we all sort of have some shtick with it. Um, I think the problem, in a way, with buying a performance is that fundamentally, this is a kind of very kind of ridiculous way of pushing at the extremes, but um, it... A performance is made with humans, and if a human is bought, at 
some point it's, it's touching on either prostitution or slavery. So there is a sense of panic and reticence around that. Yeah, and, but some artists, do you think some artists are deliberately drawing attention to that in their, well, in their performance work in the gallery? Well, I, I do, but I, I think that they're sort of, yes, I, I do. Um, but I think the sort of politics around how this happens is so fraught and has been fraught for so long that it's taken up to today to really understand quite what it might mean to buy a performance and how you might do that. Mm. Catherine, as a curator, what does it mean to you to buy performance work? I think it's interesting to hear what Brian and Pablo are both saying, although Pablo's not representing his generation in the sense that I would say I've seen a shift from uh, an originating generation of performance artists who did think about it in the way that you're saying and actually thought about it as immediate fleeting experience that couldn't be captured maybe and a younger generation since the 2000s who have thought more in terms of the performance as a score or a script, more like theatre or choreography that can be re-performed. And whereas maybe, I mean, this is generalising a lot, but maybe an older generation, it was more often <laughs> senior generation, the pioneers. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, Okay, artists working in the 70s, often the work was sort of located in the body in a way that it would be prostitution to sell that work. It would be selling yourself and your authenticity somehow. A younger generation like Tino Segal and you and Roman Ondak and people who have, that we've bought for Tate's collection, there has been a set of instructions and we would hire people to enact the work and it can have a totally different kind of presence and it isn't about the artist being there. Um, so the transaction is different and it's actually what has helped artists like Marina Abramovich who originally was very much in the yeah. former camp to actually rethink the process of reenactment and selling and all those things through the eyes of the younger generation and some are cynical about that but I would say as a museum curator trying to tell a story of art through the 20th century and understanding the meaning of art that's being made now, we do need performance in the picture because otherwise so much art doesn't make sense. You know, if you don't understand the action basis or the relations between people, the kind of live th events that were part of that work, but it's very it, hard to tell the, that story. Is the, is the move towards a score which it has been more or less pushed by curators and artists together in dialogue from it rooted in I, the body. I wouldn't say it's been pushed by curators. I would but say it's pioneered by, by, by artists. artists fine. Um, it, it, that, that, that move, would you say that that is an attempt to sort out the viable, to sort of clean up the relationship a little bit? Well, I mean, those are, like Tino Segal, a German artist um, working now, he has always thought about his position in a 21st century experience economy, which may sound bleak or problematic, but I think it's also realistic. It's almost an attitude that pop artists had of a previous generation, is how to make meaningful experience and how to deal with the reality of the situation you're in yeah. and how to make something out of that instead of pretending it... Well, I don't know if it's about pretending it doesn't exist. I mean, it's how to manipulate those structures and operate within them. 
Catherine, could you describe? Sorry, could you describe briefly what how Tino Sogal works in terms of how yeah. he, how he doesn't commodify? He won't commodify his his practice. Well, I mean, he does commodify performance. That's okay. the point I would say. Okay. Okay. He Explain. is an artist who came from a background in dance and studying economics in Germany in the nineties, um, and he makes situations. He calls them where he works with actors who. Um, perform that situation in a gallery context. So we own a piece called This is Propaganda at Tate Modern and it's acted by somebody who can sing in an almost operatic way, not professionally, who appears in the gallery as though they're a gallery attendant and when people come in they turn and face the wall and in a melancholic way start to sing this tune, singing This is Propaganda. Um, a little, I mean it's a short passage of a pop song that's kind of slowed down and when it ends they turn around and say this is a work by Tino Segal and the date. So it's got this kind of surreal disturbance of the institutional choreography that already exists in Tate and the artist has allowed us to acquire it for the collection and replay it at intervals, restage it through acquiring those rights but maybe why Jen said he doesn't commodify because he always, he always said why not make that something that can be sold. He didn't see a problem with it in an age in which experience is sold all the time. Um, and, and why not have the work perpetuated in that way? But he doesn't allow anything to be written down and he doesn't allow the work to be photographed because he wants, you know, sort of influenced by an idea of the oral tradition. He wants to make sure that what doesn't happen is what's happened to a lot of 70s performance art is that you have a vitrine with the certificate in or a vitrine with the photo in. And for him, that's nothing to do with the experience of the work he's trying to create. As a museum curator, I, I differ where the history comes in because I think you have to kind of give clues and signify. But his whole drive for that work was to be hardcore about no photos, no documents. Brian. Oh, I'm, I'm just clarify now, wasn't suggesting a puritanical state that doesn't acknowledge that the world has changed or is changing. No. Uh, performance is, uh, it, it is an evolving language and these things must exist. Everything is, um, should be encouraged. It's, I'm, I'm not saying, um, I was talking about a very particular response to um, uh, notions of curation and, and in my generation, the, the thing that worked more, and I don't think is there now, was um, work was promoted by being commissioned. Mm. So people would commission new pieces of work, and that was, that, that, that was the evolving force. That was the evolving commercial part, mm. that you could exist and the work could exist mm. by people asking you to make new works. And I think what's happened now, it's reversed or changed, or changed position. But I think what comes out and the way artists make work Chrissy Arles said there's no such thing as performance as a performance artist. There are only artists here. I agree who, with her. Who, who, who make performance? I agree yeah. with her entirely. It's only one of the things I do. It's only one mm. of the things that mm. um, um, many other artists do. Actually, and related to what you said at the beginning, mm. in that light, I think that art does or can do all those things. I think we're in a culture where we've almost started to mistake the object for the experience Absolutely. of art. Yeah, yeah. And performance is often the thing that shows you that that experience is live and emotional and yeah. unstable. Yeah. And it kind of, to my mind, it's a primary experience of art 
And it, that can also happen to you through an object, but we've sort of started to think objects are artworks, mm. or artworks are objects, and performance is something else. But, but Actually, they're both creating experiences but, in the viewer. I, I wasn't suggesting the performance as to that must be owned by the performer at that time. Mm. It's, it's a major contribution, but, but uh, making pieces that are made by other people or making pieces far away made by other people is extremely exciting things to do. Mm. So, I mean, I think most performance artists are genuinely engaged in trying to stretch the language. Mm. One thing I'd like to come back to that you've <clears throat> excuse me, raised is the question of whether or not the, the maker, the performance artist, is in his or her own work or not. And so here we have to, Brian, you're in your performance work, and Pablo, you're not. And Catherine, you've contextualized this in a genealogy. Well, very crudely. <coughs> yes. Well, but it, Pablo has actually appeared in his pardon. own performance once. It was fantastic. He should do it more often, oh, a lecture okay. performance. Uh -huh. You've heard tape. it here. That's a call for Pablo to do more performance work. I, I do occasionally. Yeah. I, I, I occasionally dress up a bit. What okay. Sorry, what was the question? So the question, the question really is, what, what, what's the difference between performing in your own work or, or producing a script that other performers perform? So Catherine suggested that, that part of the difference is a different social, social economy around who, who performs. Um, but I, the, yeah. audiences might approach it differently. The star performer, so Mar Marina Bromovich is getting other people to perform her work, but she's also, it's also about the, the star persona in her work, it seems to me now. So how do you, what difference does it feel for you, Pablo? Why do you choose sometimes to be in or not be in, for example? Um, well, I'm not, I don't, I'm not particularly coherent in my own work, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I think that it's, it, it's sometimes done to facilitate dissemination within institutions. So it's actually quite easy. It's easier. It's easy right. to specify what you, what you want and how you want it sort of transmitted. Um, and that's why I sort of made that, so I, I asked that question about whether it was something that is a sort of deliberate strategy in order for it to be sort of sold or mm -hmm. sold institutionally, however that. Um, but uh, I sometimes appear in my own work because I think at, those moments that the presence of the artist is part of what the, the performance needs. Um, sometimes it's unfortunately very practical reasons that we just can't afford more dancers. Um. Okay, well going back to your point about artists <laughs> yes. concerned with money. Brian, yeah. what about you? Why, do you? why is it important for you to be in your performances and not it's to? Not, okay. It's not essential and I've made things that aren't like that. The easiest way to describe it is that it's, um, it's malleable it's usable and it's understandable what I'm constructing. I'm, I'm, I'm essentially a sculptor mm. in all the things I do. Um, so the kind of hands-on of the moment of the working of the piece and it, when it's actually being performed, it, it, it's very important. So it's not the same piece of work over and over again. It changes it, it, if, I, it if I make the same piece continually. Um, and I, I, I find that exciting, and I find that that also gives me a possibility of uh, to read the audience, yeah. to actually hear what's coming back from them, and, and letting the actual audience shape the work yeah. or twist it in some way, rather than making something which is a, a remote control. Yeah, so if you're in it yourself, then you can be more responsive, perhaps, to, to the audience. Or, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes they feed it. 
they yeah. completely change a piece of work in a way that's very difficult to explain uh, without it sounding like psychic phenomena or something. But it's it is it it is a way a group of people will start to combine and tell you something in the middle of performance. Mm. I mean, even even conductors will tell you this mm. with their back to an audience; they can read it. Catherine, you suggested that um, galleries need performance now because without performance, we're not getting the whole picture, but we're missing particular things about maybe contemporary culture or the range of human experience. Can you expand on, I mean, clearly you're an advocate for performance in the gallery, but what, do, what is it that you think is most important about having performance in the gallery or some of the things? I mean, building on your point that Chrissy Isles, curator at the Whitney made, I don't think it is about performance art. I do think performance is part of contemporary art. It's part of post-war art. It's been part of art since the early 20th century with Dada and futurism and all of that. And I think there are sometimes criticisms of the idea that institutions like Tate are trying to liven things up by adding a performance program. Um, we, you know, I would say that I'm, we're really trying from a curatorial point of view to reflect the work that we see being made by artists that feels the most vital and the most exciting. Partly from a contemporary perspective because I noticed with my generation with artists like Pablo or Mark Leckie or Marvin Gaye Chetwin there was this kind of resurgence of interest in performance in the early 2000s um, and I didn't know when we first started programming at Tate whether that was something that would last or whether it was a sort of a fad that would last a year. And actually, it's something that has grown and grown amongst artists. And wanting to make that kind of work, maybe in a context of you know, excessive social media, like wanting to make events where people share things together in real space and time, has become a big feature of contemporary art. And so it's also through looking at the, the past through the lens of the present, I've worked a lot on how we can bring that story of the past into the space of art into the space of the museum and into the story. And whether it's through collecting fragments or documents, videos, sets, or whether through reenacting work where possible and where we can work with the artist, those are the different approaches that we've tried to do it. Um, in terms of maybe a bigger question about performance in the museum, I think the funny thing is, at a museum like Tate, it's full of sculptures and paintings behind barriers. And I was in a in a museum in Germany the other day that was very empty in comparison, where there were no barriers. And I thought, it's funny how in Tate we still pretend that we're doing these displays for beautiful empty spaces, when in fact it's full of like five or six million visitors a year. People are the museum. You know, the architecture has solidified out of our ways of wanting to hang things on walls and wanting to put things on plinths, but art is changing and I think people are the architecture of the museum. And artists who intervene in social relationships, who make things that directly are about relating between people, are a fundamental part of what a museum actually is. You know, We've sort of solidified it into the habit of the 18th century model, but that's not really what it is anymore. 
Yeah, I think it's virtually impossible, especially in the Tate Modern, to have one of those standing back alone moments with a, a work of art on the wall. Every, all work is, is relational art because I'm always mm. struggling with my fellow audience members to see it. And it can have <laughs> moments of beauty. To see the Mona Lisa hovering above a crowd of people is, is nicer than seeing the Mona Lisa by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brian, I think that you have made a point of not trying to earn a living from making, making, making art. No. Yeah. So and this another um, and this seems. I have a day job. You have a day job, which is working in a in a in an art college and teaching yeah. and running programs and things like that. And so to go back to what um, Pablo talked about in terms of the um, artist's concern with econ the economies of, of of practice, why did you make that choice, and and how has it enabled your art practice? Oh, it was very simple. Um, when I finished postgraduate studies and came came out to the world, I didn't want to sell the objects I was making because they were the wrong ones. I mean, I knew I wasn't there yet. I knew it'd take a, a month, um, a, a longer time. And I saw my contemporaries building a kind of work which if they sold one, they would then sell 20. So it was like a furniture factory. And I wanted to play. I wanted to play all my life. I wanted to make experiments and try all, all all kind of things, and I realized that wasn't the way to do it. I couldn't do it through making a series of works that would then sell, because somewhere along the line I would be trapped by them, because that's part of my, 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 my psychology. And I wanted to teach, I wanted to be involved, I wanted to put, put, put something back in. So teaching's been a very important part of what I do, because it's nothing to do with what I do in the studio. Okay, great. Thanks. And Pablo, you said earlier that you've um, potentially bankrupted a couple of small galleries because of the, I think, by the ambition of your, <clears throat> excuse me, your practice. So your your relationship with the economy of, of the gallery is slightly <laughs> different, perhaps. What, um, what can you talk a bit more about that? Why why um, do you make such ambitious works? Well, so, I mean, it's it's not ambitious in that the work is. 90-foot-tall Conrad Shawcross cast in bronze ambitious. Okay, it's yeah. not that kind of ambition. Um, I, I, the, the requests I get from institutions are normally be ambitious. Okay. You know, so... Uh, and, and when... Within a budget. Within a budget. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I, it's, it's things like, I mean... So, so for the Devine Commission, I was asked to do a performance, you know. The, yeah, which the, we're seeing now. The, the, the conversations are very sort of involved with, with mm. curators. They can be, you know, they can be very straightforward and, and very clued up. They, they know that you, you may do a, a whole sort of spectrum of different works and they may think that one sort of work might be appropriate or you may get um, a, a, a larger institution like for example, the ICA that has that is divided up into lots of different spaces, and then it becomes very logical to try out lots of different things in the space. Um, but I mean, fuck knows. To be honest, I mean, I, I think that that the level of ambition in the work is sometimes performative, if that makes sense. In other words, I will sometimes deliberately make an ostentatious work in the wrong place um, as I'm a bit of a contrarian that way yeah, I mean it sounds a bit punky but I, I, I think actually in practice I have had that sort of uh, 
reputation. Know, yeah, a bit. Yeah. Yeah. The okay. levels of performativity in your work run deep, I would say, <laughs> exactly. or yes. with, with your lecturing as well on, <laughs> on the history of subjects <laughs> yes. and things like that, the yes. levels of play in theatre. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'd like to move on a bit to another question about what kinds of what kinds of performance we do see in galleries and what what that constructs the performance of, in galleries as and what kind of performance we don't see in galleries and if you if you feel that certain work is privileged in galleries or galleries are able able to privilege certain kinds of work if we're not seeing certain art practices that we'd like to see what the what the implications are of um, the kind of curatorial selection or even structural possibilities that we have, and you might think of friends who you feel's work is neglected, or um, practices that you wanted to make that haven't been able to be accommodated by the gallery, or mm -hmm. Catherine, you might think of stuff that you would have loved to bring to the gallery which hasn't been possible. I'm interested, because if we are seeing more um, performance in galleries, what is the selection that we're seeing? Because it's the tip of the iceberg. Well, I'm, I mean, should I go first? Yeah, please do. I mean, I, I, I sort of, I mean, I feel, um, you, Catherine, you talked a little bit about about artists of your generation. Um, and I think that in, certainly in my sort of lifetime as an artist, there's been a, a bit of a shift, actually. Um, and so um, the artists that you began working with when you, even before you got to the date, um, are all a bit bonkers in one way or another. Um, and what has happened since, I think, and by bonkers I mean that we all have very particular and not necessarily very logical reasons for producing work, particular sorts of work. Um, and it can sometimes appear, quite frankly, mad. You know, so Spartacus Chapman can seem insane. You know, the work can seem bonkers. Um, mine sometimes has a sort of... A, 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 there's not much reason for it to be what it is. I mean, I justify it, but it, it has nothing to do with the justification. Um, but one... <laughs> But one of the things that I think I'm, I, I think is happening is that just I see where you're going with this. Yes, <laughs> I think what I'm, what I'm I'll get the there. Professionalisation sorry. of performance. Professionalisation of performance, it, it, which in a way is not only a problem that has happened to artists, and I do think is, is it is a bit of a problem. It is a problem that is happening to performance curators that follow you. So, in other words, just like there are artists that are now talking to other artists very specifically about performance. And the conversations are very narrow now because it has become potentially a modus operandi with its career strategies. Um, there is within the performance art curating, of which there are now young acolytes that are doing what you do and look up to you, there are people that are also creating and having conversations that are also extraordinarily narrow. And one of the things that the danger of that is, is that artists now no longer use performance as a way of letting off steam and trying things out, that it becomes already very contained. So it's not as experimental as what Brian was yeah, talking about I earlier. So. I should contextualize that. I understand that Catherine and Pablo are friends. So, <laughs> um, so. Yes, yeah, so you're allowed to be mean to me on the stage. Blame me for the professionalization. Um, I, I, I have a slight... I mean, actually, I love the idiosyncrasy of the kinds of performance that Brian has done and know that you've talked about, and, and also what Pablo's talking about. It's true. That freedom is the seed of everything in art. But 
I think what you're describing in the contemporary art world is by no means confined to performance. I, I, totally I think it's agree. a totally widespread agree. thing of how artists imagine having careers and the world they're born into and forced to survive in yes, I totally, is partly I totally to blame. Agree. I completely so agree I don't think that. we can just say that's happening in performance. I think there is a professionalisation, a proliferation of art fairs and all kinds of things have happened in the past 15 years very rapidly that have changed the way artists think and strategize. I would like to think as a curator that I am discerning enough to spot the ones who are just in it for the strategic career moves. Um, yeah. Sometimes are, that can be people, an interesting part of but, but there are people that follow in a way that you're, you're, you're a bit of an anomaly, aren't you? In, in, I mean, you were the, first, you were the well, first performance curator at the Tate. Yeah, that, and you created I'm still that, the only. Well, yeah. no, and you created a, that post yourself, you know, <laughs> and that's an anomaly. That's an anomaly. I, I mean, yes, but there are people in positions like mine in the Rainer Sophia, the Stedlick in Amsterdam, MoMA in New York, the Whitney in New York. You know, there are lots of equivalent positions in international museums, and just as. 20 years before, there weren't really film and video specialist curators or photography curators. So now it will be digital, I should think. Next. Brian, Brian yeah. Just add something from the other end. Please do, yeah. Uh, one of the things that's happening more and more is that students are using performance as a tool to understand in studio how to extend their work in the same way that people used to do with drawing. So they're not going to be a performance artist. They're trying something out performatively. Yeah to see if it's going to go that way, which might go back into an object, it might go into a film, it might go back into a text piece. But So it's become a kind of language which is uh, non-specialist, but it's in the toolkit with everything else. And, I think and that's, 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 that's changed. Changed. That's essential. It's very interesting to yeah. put it like that. But I think the artists I've always been interested in working with are actually those that are also making painting, sculpture, or video, or drawing. And often like you and Marvin, were coming out of a painting or drawing practice and sort of projecting that world and imagining who are the characters who would inhabit this world or, you know, how would you play it out as a theatrical fantasy of some sort? So there was very much a, a connection to those sort of core art practices. Do you feel, Brian, that the kind of work that you've made in, in your career is, is tolerated or, or encouraged by galleries. So I think, Pablo, you're, I think you're kind of describing, you use the word bonkers, but I might use the word messy or less formalist, maybe. Oh, Can I just make a plea? Can yeah, we distinguish, yeah. when we say galleries, whether we mean public but, galleries or commercial galleries, because mm -hmm. there are two strata of the art world that... Yeah, okay. Well, I've hardly ever shown anything in the commercial gallery. So they haven't <laughs> helped you. <laughs> if you think Matt's gallery is a commercial gallery, then, you know... No, well, well in between, as as yeah. So, uh, so I mean, no, because it makes, but it's a choice. I mean, I can't yeah. blame it on performance. Yeah. Okay. The, I, I didn't want to be coagulated. I want, I wanted to keep this thing um, fluid. Uh, state galleries, especially abroad, have been incredibly helpful with that because they sponsor new pieces. Yeah. So this raises a question for me of how galleries, and perhaps I mean both, well, I mean probably both private and public, um, how they might better support um, artists who make performance, um, if we think that would be a good thing, and also how they might better support audiences' experiences of performance, or how, how they already try to do that, um, especially if this is something that's increasingly coming into galleries. 
So how do you, what do you think about those things? How could galleries better support artists and also better support audiences? Just make more, just encourage more. Encourage it's more. It's very small. Yeah. I mean, we're still a, a kind of a, a minority event. It's like poetry. You don't expect mm. it to be, yeah. you know, huge amounts of funding or uh, museums or, or theatres dedicated to poetry. There's something kind of about it which it, it kind of doesn't want that to happen, including mm. the... Because the, I think they're going to evolve. Everything's evolving everywhere. But you must encourage that. Mm. So new works and more of it. Great. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that the, the, the tape, um, the thing that the tape put on um, a couple of years ago, the Musée de la Danse, was a deeply thrilling experience for me because of the scale, because of the feeling that it had taken over the entire museum. It was really pretty astonishing. Um, and I just think that there's um, a question of scale that can be addressed with performance. Um, unfortunately, there's obviously budget issues to do with that, but it still feels like there could be more takeover on a larger scale of museums. The budget is the, yeah, is the big issue. Um, what was the beginning of your question? So it was about how galleries can support. I think within the economy of the art world as a whole, there is an emerging real problem, actually, because much as artists in the past have found strategies to survive, or maybe arts council grants were a big feature, I think, in the <laughs> 70s and 80s, which are not so much now, um, and there was more commissioning, yeah. you know, Tate hardly ever commissions, actually. The performance programme is one of the only things, apart from the Turbine Hall Commission, which is a commission at Tate. Um, and even then, budgets are, are tight. So I think there is a bit of a misconception that artists are selling performance and making money. Even the well-known ones who do edition their performance yeah, yeah. works are not making money, really, not compared to object makers who are successful in the market. And there is this gap growing for artists trying to make this kind of work who are kind of one foot in the commercial gallery system, could almost function there, and commercial galleries will often take on one artist who makes this kind of work because it looks good in the program, or they like the work or whatever. I mean, it's part of the, you know, what's good. But then they're not in theatre and dance world either, which are relatively pretty well supported for commissioning. Comparatively speaking, yeah. Well, compared to no funding in the art world. <laughs> so, you know, there's a big gap, I think, for visual artists making this kind of work between those two kinds of structures. And institutions are not necessarily the answer. Commissioning is limited. I think it's more fundamental support structures, so, actually, patronage or arts okay. council, or in the same way that dance and theatre are supported. Right, so perhaps the, should the be performance supported, element say. and museum exhibition should be better supported by something like the Arts Council, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think we're sort of treating it as inevitable that we're moving towards an American model of fundraising in our museums. And I just think we shouldn't be, and we need poetry. <laughs> and that's never going to be commercial, like you say. And there are areas of art practice that are never going to be commercial, even if these things can flirt with commercialism and say they're auditioning. And, it's only a few very inspired experimental collectors who would buy a performance. There are probably 20 of them yeah. <laughs> internationally. Which kind of puts it back into the artist's hands, mm. like it always has, any artist, well, any time. 
I mean, it, I think there's a. I think we need to think collectively about how to address. If those things don't work, mm. you know, and you still want to make the work, this is a form that can be made. Um, I, I mean, I love the beamworks as well. I really, they're very exciting. But these things can be made, and an audience can be gathered, and it can be people can be told about where where works are going to occur now more than ever before. So it does, you know, it may be that that's the answer, that we actually move away entirely. From institutions. From institutions. Well, I mean, if you look at the history of performance in Eastern Europe, yeah, no, exactly. and obviously the most exciting work, not to romanticise the conditions yeah. in any way, because they're shocked. incredibly tough, yeah. but yeah, it was kind of illegal to make the work. <laughs> so being done covertly yeah, amongst yeah, the community, but that was a, a lot of work. performance. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that, I mean, it seems like you're partly suggesting that we need we we need to reevaluate reevaluate performance and also change cultural attitudes towards the value of performance, in order to get and to understanding what art where art is happening in an experience inside a museum and it's not only happening when you're standing in front of a painting, much as I love painting, but you know it is happening in the relations between people as well, and the way that artists work on that, and the texture of that. And audiences are always curious. Mm. Never underestimate an audience's mm. curiosity. No, there's a real critical suspicion. An art oh, article yeah. by Hal Foster, who talks about yeah. zombie time in the museum, this idea that reenacting historic performance brings back the dead, and. It's a real insult to the audience often, the idea that the audience is this stupefied mass who uh, <laughs> can't tell the difference between spectacle yeah. and performance. Can they tell the difference? I mean, so you, can never, you can never imagine that the audience is a homogenous mass. Mm. It's full of individuals who take away different things and some are incredibly informed and some might think... Yeah. It is a spectacular bit of fun, but you know yeah. that's the same with any artwork in any museum. I think. Yes, I, yes, yeah. No, I, I agree. I just think that there's the, the problem is that with I mean performance, we have to in a way be careful what we wish for also because there is a problem of a, a kind of qualitative judgment and criteria that we will have to comply with if it becomes commercially more viable. You know, it, it, at the moment it's still able to be rubbish. Um, but no, that is important, it's true. It's able to be embarrassing to be. or failed or... <laughs> or... Or to be elusive, perhaps, and not be tied down to particular things. Well, Marina Abramovich is definitely the Hollywoodization mm. of work that came from an impulse of... That's right. And I think we would potential all rather rip our eyeballs out than sit through Marina Abramovich's <laughs> exhibition. Um, so, what we've talked <laughs> near the beginning... I've got... I'll move on. Um, we had... I'd like to ask two more... <laughs> yeah. I'll ask two more questions and then we'll open to He's the floor. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we've talked about how one of the um, potential real values of performance is its liveness, its ephemerality, its dynamism, its embodiedness, its um, all those kinds of things. And and then we might ask, what is the, is there a responsibility to the institution or the gallery or the artist to document and save elements of the performance work um, for? for the future, which is a preoccupation of the academy, but also of artists and, uh, and of institutions. Um, so what, what are your feelings about that? Do you, do you want your work to be documented in particular ways and saved or, um, or displayed? Or would you prefer that it isn't, so that it becomes, like you were saying, Brian, a memory, and it's precisely the elusiveness of the, 
of the act itself that is, is part of the, the joy or the particularity of it. No, the trouble with that is, um, is the empty vitrine of the signature. I mean, the photographs and bits and pieces from performance can work like a um, incentive to make another one for people. Mm. I mean, that's the way I, you know, you, yeah. you, there's generally two images that come out of each performance that are usable and have something to do with what occurred. Mm. And those two images generally help to create the next piece of work, not for the artist, but for the person who's going to encourage it to exist or be seen. Yeah. So it's just matter of fact sort of stuff. Mm. I mean, if people ask me about it, I say I don't care. I honestly don't care what you do. Just get out of the way and get on with it. Okay, so it doesn't matter to you, but it's perhaps a potential, a provocation or a catalyst for future work, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. also there's been, been some great works made only for camera. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Pablo, what about you? How do you feel about having your work documented? Um, well, it, how do I feel? I mean, in, in practical terms, documentation is extraordinarily tricky. Um, and it produces monsters. Um, so very often I, I'm happiest with still documentation of moving work because it somehow allows the viewer to not be disappointed. Um, there is a, an absolute sort of death that happens when you watch a video of a performance. Yeah. And a, a poor video, poor quality video. Yeah. 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 So in a way, Bad the sort of still image somehow or other allows a, a movement for the person looking at those images. Um, the, the, the way, the reality of an artist like myself doing performance is that they function in a particular way within the sort of economy or image economy of the art world. So um, despite the fact that I will do, um, say, two or three performances a year um, and uh, 20 or 50 drawings a year, um, the two or three images of the performances will be disseminated an awful lot more. Mm -hmm. And that is also one of the reasons why commercial galleries now like having one or two performance artists on their book because it, it, it creates very good copy, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, I mean, I'm relatively... At first I made some mistakes and said I don't want anything documented or, or I don't want anything to interfere with the documentation. Now I'm very eager to even restage it artificially in order to get a couple of good images because unfortunately or fortunately... That's the shtick. Yeah, that's okay. the word. I think there's an interesting relation between social media circulation of images of performance and the experience of liveness. And somehow, like, even though I was saying there's been a rise in interest in liveness, uh, in parallel, you have to kind of Instagram the image of it to show that you've been there. So that's one way the images have that life. And I think even though photos are really, well, video it can be terribly inadequate, but each artist I've worked with has had a different relation, really, to how they see the status of the image. And for some people, that becomes the work. For others, it's just a set of reference points. But I think as a museum, even though it's not the full experience of the work, it can be this really important marker in showing the evolution of that history. And I think you can imagine so much from a Jack Smith photograph, photo of a performance artists working in 50s and 60s New York, these crumbling sets with fabulous painted costumes and plaster um, 
exotic set in his apartment. You, you imagine so much and they can be so productive to see those images that were composed for the camera through his performances, whether or not it's anything like the three-hour experience of seeing him sort of drunkenly ramble on stage and <laughs> project slides and play music if you were there. So because these, you know, the good artists, I think, are often composing all the time in a way that can be captured in a photograph that will transmit something to the next generation looking at it. Great, thank you. So my, my last question, which is, I don't know, it might be too big, but why do you think it's important to make a performance for a gallery setting now? I'm really the wrong person to ask that because I'm quite, I'm, my work is quite compulsive, uh, to be honest. Um, and so it does what, it, what I feel that it needs to do. Um, I would hate for a, an artist to think it's important that I make performances. But, but there are artists that are doing that. Um, and there are artists that are very, very cynical and are able to follow through with that. Um, why is it important that, I mean, I make it in particular because I think I'm the only person that's interested in 17th century movement, quite frankly. And there's a lot of people interested in deconstructing post-colonial perspectives, you know. So I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a bit of an anomaly, so I can sort of occasionally be brought out like a, like a weirdo and do something odd. Do that thing. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> Brian, what about you? Same thing, really. Same thing. You make yeah. it because you want to make it. But, but the, the gallery, why the gallery? Um, because they're all different. I mean, I don't see the gallery as a sort of, yeah. you know, like doing something here for the summer show is very, very bizarre and challenging and made this thing for it because... I knew it was going to be, and it, and it is, and it's even more than I knew it was. But they're gatherings of people, they're, they're marketplaces, not just for selling and trading. People go there for a social reason, they go there mm. to be entertained, they go there to be amazed, they go there because they're bored, they go there because they've got nowhere else to go, and the rest of the world is so grey and miserable. So it's, it's, an, it's still an interesting place to make work. But the gallery doesn't have to be an institutional gallery. It can be something that's called a gallery for 10 minutes. Mm. There right. is something, ex I think, extremely important about doing a performance work for the summer exhibition because, um, in a way, this is going to sound really like a nasty thing to say, but I, do, I don't mean it nastily at all. The, the, the summer exhibition is not somewhere where the general public necessarily go to see good art. They go there to see artists trying to make contact with a larger public. Um, and so an artwork that is able to reach out directly is important and it's disturbing and unique, I think. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, we have time, 15 minutes or so, for questions um, from you guys, has anybody got something that you'd like to ask? So there's a question here. Uh, going back to the beginning of the conversation about that shift from body-based or body-centered and school-based work, do you think that one of the reasons for that shift is also move towards safety? Because school-based work is safe to recreate, where body-based work, if you think about boys, uh, I love America and, uh, and America loves me. I'm not quite sure who will recreate that. So that's one question. And the other question is, so it's about safety, generally, in performance today. And the other is about the role of public institutions, whether it's about enabling creativity or supporting artists 
and whether there is a tension between that. That's Great, thank you. So the first question was about safety and whether or not the, the switch from the, the body artist to the script artist addresses that. Catherine, do you yeah. want to say something? I think there was a um, whole movement in performance after the Second World War, also from Japan in the 50s through America in the 60s, Eastern Europe, towards an idea of the authentic subject kind of testing themselves and being stripped back and show, you know, this very uh, sort of authentic idea of pure presence that informed a lot of body art and performance that was about risk. And I don't think those concerns are so present, those kind of existential concerns are so present with a new generation. So I don't think they're avoiding risk because they're scared of, you know, safety concerns. I think it's a different psychological mindset for a contemporary generation. Of course, there are still a lot of artists doing the risk-based work, but maybe they're not as prominent in the discourses of contemporary art. Would anybody else like to respond to that? Or should we? The second question was about what's the role of the public institution and if it's to enable the art or to support the artist? No, Creative support creativity, creativity generally. more generally. So is the tension really between um, participation in art and performance art? I think museums and the dance really address that well because there were kind of elements of performance art, but also there were there may be there may be a and this is this is slightly it connects to the point that I made about uh, Brian's performance for the summer exhibition there there may be a, a a secret perceived lack of humanness in a lot of contemporary art certainly the larger scale stuff and so and performance directly addresses that. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you thought so about Musée de la Danse. I think you're right that through the history of modernism and art, you know, the viewer has been more or less excluded from the experience or the relation with the artwork in different ways, which has been to do with the kind of sacredness of the object or this alternative sphere. I do think there is, you know, especially a generation since the 90s and so-called relational aesthetics, artists making larger scale participatory works, there is this desire amongst many artists to treat the fact of an audience as part of why they're making the work, you know, and a desire to share it. And I really like the way that in the Musée de la Danse project, it relates to what Brian was saying. The choreographer Boris Sharmat said, he liked the idea that you could visit this dancing museum and you could take away a piece of the heritage by learning it and it would stay in your body. So even beyond it just being in your memory, the memory of dancing with the company and learning a piece of the heritage of dance would go away with you. But I mean, at Tate, yeah, I, I am interested in bringing those kind of works into somewhere like Tate with a space like the Turbine Hall, which is between a public square and a gallery it's ideal and to that extent you could say are we programming because of our big audience that kind of work I guess that that is part of it but I think there are many many good contemporary artists who want to kind of work on on the relational side of things Brian would you like to add anything I think it's, it's again something to do with um, 
an institutional misunderstanding of audience. That um, <coughs> artists, there are artists in the audience, artists have to do a special job. The audience are the people who come and see the art, they can take it away any way they want. And you encourage them to do it, and you encourage them to be it. Now, in object-based work, it's a passive, it's a passive reaction. In performance art, it's not passive. There's something uh, at its core, the exchange between, exchange of ideas and exchange of, of emotions is an intellectual one. It's not just the, um, an experience. And I think what's happened in the way things have been, the way artists are asked to explain their work when they apply for grants, the way um, commissioners are asked to explain, it's about explanation to another level up. And I think that's what well, everybody, that is a but the further it goes up, the blinder and less interested it becomes. Mm. Mm. So there's more layers of shit to get through than ever before, I think. I mean, there were, you know, it's, and that's where it kind of, that's where it jams. But it's nothing to do with <coughs> the artist or the audience. It's to do with the layers that have been imposed to the institution. I think that's a really good point. And it can be this fault line in museums programming performance. The suspicion that things are being programmed to fit some kind of government criteria for participation in art. <laughs> you know, because that, you're right, on an, I don't know if it's just the Arts Council, but on the funding form side of things, there's often a need to sort of justify the social outcome of the work. We do try to avoid that, I, I would say, curatorially it takes. the government uh, and its attitude to the arts anymore. I think we know uh, quite clearly. Well, we do uh, in another respect. <laughs> yes, all too clear. On that note, another question near the back. Um, thank you so much. It's just really insightful and honest conversation that I really appreciate. I think this is a question for Catherine, but open to anybody. This interest, or this um, idea of the curator kind of telling the story or the narrative, which has a kind of historical lineage, and because I think of Anna Teresa de Kiersmacher's work that you've programmed, and as I understand, she really considers herself a dancer. I don't think she would call herself a performance artist or that her work is performance art, and it really is a kind of choreographic practice. So I'm just curious, Catherine, how you, how you kind of see those, those narratives or those stories sort of coming out of dance and also performance art, which I think have quite different histories, although they kind of overlap and cross over at times, and also different politics around the body, and how those sit next to each other, or does one kind of fold into the other? Yeah, well, I would just say, yes, absolutely, that at Tate, um, as with many other museums, we've programmed dance within the space of art, and also music and theatre at times. And I think, from my point of view, it's, on the one hand, because there's been such rich relationships between artists and choreographers and musicians. And our Rauschenberg exhibition recently showed the extent to which Robert Rauschenberg was actively influenced by his dialogue with the choreographer Merce Cunningham and his relationship with John Cage. And you can absolutely see that before they were thinking what's dance, what's visual art and, and what's music, there was this free permission between them to borrow from and learn from each other's specific disciplinary practices. 
So that's been a really strong foundation, I think, of, of post-war and contemporary art, that kind of dialogue. And my own interest in programming choreography at Tate was to do with the fact that so many artists, visual artists, I mean, it's partly also through my interest in research in Yvonne Rayner, 1960s um, choreographer in New York, who um, worked in, in relation often to minimalism, which is how I came through to her work originally, through studying minimalism from an art historical point of view. I would say that because so many young artists have borrowed from choreography, Pablo's one of them, but there have been many who've been use, or, or, like, working with dance, working with choreography, working with ideas of theatre, it feels really important to bring in the kind of key pioneers from the opposite side. So the choreographers whose work, like Anna Teresa's does, speaks to questions around minimalism um, and who's made you know, dance in an installation format, or Boris Sharmatz, who's invented the Musée de la Danse, or Yvonne Rayner, who worked directly with visual artists. So putting those two kinds of practices together within the same frame, and actually the visual art can learn from the dance side, I feel, in that context, and hopefully the conversation goes both ways, feels to be an important thing to do to kind of extend the boundaries of that conversation. Thank you. We have another question here at the front in the second row. I hope I'm not going to sound too stupid. Um, coming back to the Tino Segal piece, uh, I was just wondering, I mean, you know, if Tate then at some point got short of money, could you sell it? Would you make a profit from it? Um, could I steal it, nick it, and perform it somewhere else? Um, <laughs> The bootleg version, yes. That would have me up in court for doing so? What if I change the wording a little bit so it's not, this is propaganda, but this is... I'm just curious. I love, I love these questions. questions. Thank you. Um, we can't, we don't and can't deaccession works at Tate, generally. So nothing, I mean, in a way it's ironic that we would talk about the value of any works in the collection because they are never going to be sold, at least that's the promise. So nothing, everything's of, that, of value in the same way once it's entered the collection. Um, I doubt you could resell it. It's <laughs> anyway, even if it, if it could be. Yeah, I like, the, I like the idea of making a bootleg, but actually the, the artist would not like that. But the, uh, you know, with the work, it's a very, very specific and nuanced passage of movement and singing that I guess you could spend hours watching and copy but um, maybe you wouldn't know all the artist's criteria. But it's like, yeah, I guess it's like anything. I don't know whether he'd send his lawyers after you or not. Well, for me, <laughs> one of the things about his work is that it, it provokes those, those kinds of questions in mm. an audience. Like, what is, what is the script? What are the performers, the, what are the inactors being asked to do? What could you do with it? Could you do it differently? How much are they exercising their own agency and how much are they being required to yeah. do certain things. So uh, for me, that's part of the texture of the work that makes it interesting. Um, we have another question in the front row, and I think we're going to wrap up after that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just, uh, the thing I'm wondering about is, is there a need to be a bit wary about curation? Because with curation, you're going to create a history, because it's going to be in the, in the nature. And I, I was thinking right from the start with Brian's remarks, 
I think we have to be very wary of orthodoxy in terms of what was going on. I mean, actually in the 60s, uh, I, I was involved in a performance art group, and we were totally not interested in ephemerality. And actually, we're performing at Raven Row at the moment, and we're recreating a piece we did 40 years ago. Tell us your name, please. Uh, my name's Anthony Howell, Thank and you. this is the Theatre of Mistakes. And the Theatre of Mistakes was very keen on actually saying, well, how, how, could you, how could you keep something which was made both with words and actions? Because in a sense, theatre being more really emphasised on text, could keep its text, and then, yes, you would have a few stage directions. But our stage directions, Drama. our action, was, was as integral as the language. So, that, so we did actually work very hard on trying to um, preserve the, the, the texts. And I think there, there, were these, there were these anomalies to the orthodoxy, which was very strong, but it had to be ephemeral. Uh, just one, one or two other points. Is I think it's very important to feel that performance art was just a way of making art in a context in any time, just as you say with the minimalism of, 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 of Rainer and uh, with what Cage and Cunningham and Rauschenberg were, were doing, um, which I saw at the Fondation Meicht in a, probably the 63, 64, you know, all performing together, not on the stage, in among the Giacometti sculptures, you know. Um, and, and one of the things that was important was when I was coming into the, into the performance art world, minimalism and concept art was very, very important. So Michael Craig Martin was creating a piece of, of pails suspending a table, and we were using pails and tables and thinking about suspension. So actually we're very much part of the art world. We're not some separate um, thing. Oh, that's really all I've done. No, thank you. In fact, that's a powerful place to end, I think. Um, so thank you very much for that contribution. Yeah. So thank you again a to pioneer Amy. of the score yes, for perpetuating absolutely. the work. Yeah. Well, I know, I know. So thanks to everyone for coming tonight and to um, Brian Catling and Catherine Wood and Pablo Bronstein and Amy Bluett for organizing this. And uh, please join us for a drink now. And uh, perhaps we will or won't clap and destroy the energy that Brian was speaking about. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.